according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in uh, Proverbs chapter 1 as we return to where we left off. We are looking at the benefits of studying Proverbs. Everything that uh, in these verses, verse 2, 3, 4, 6, and 7, that start with the word to, to know, to discern, to receive, to give, to the youth, uh, to understand, all right? These words to, um, these, these expressions are describing the purpose, the, uh, the effects we have purpose clauses, we have result clauses, we have different ways that language is used to communicate uh, what things do. And that's what we have here, to know, to discern, to receive, to give, uh, to the youth, to understand. We have these twos that are in here. And every one of these twos is a purpose, all right? So, uh, for example, my present review is to bring you up to date, to uh, remind you if you were here, or to bring you up to speed if you weren't here. We use to, little helping word to, T-O, little helping word that helps us to understand. All right. Let's open with a word of prayer and ask the Father to bless our time in his word today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for this day and for the truth of your word and the blessings that this class is and has been and continues to be. Father, we uh, just rejoice over the blessings we have to have completed the Life of Christ series and to now be in the midst of the book of Proverbs and trumpet pending. Father, uh, we're going to be here for some time and uh, we're looking forward to it because of what your word promises. And your word promises that studying this book uh, has great impact in the life of a believer whether young or old or in between, Father. And we're studying that this morning and uh, um, licking our chops, ready to devour uh, what you have uh, provided for us. So we ask for your hand of blessing as we study. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are in the midst of main point three as we outline Proverbs chapter one. We started with Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, and uh, had a bunch of points of study under that, five of them, A, B, C, D, E, related to Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, background of this book, who the author is, and uh, the particulars there. We then studied at our main point two, what does it mean to be a proverb? These are called the Proverbs of Solomon. So, okay, we get that. We know who Solomon is, but what's a proverb? And uh, went through the uh, understanding of really the the broad usages of a mashal. What is a mashal? And what... Uh, uh, how are they parables? Are they discourses? Are they taunts? Are they proverbs? What are they? And and hopefully, based on that, we're able to relax a little bit and understand that the, the Hebrew language is not like the English language, all right? That in English, we uh, we get very uh, wrapped up over the use of certain things. And so if it's, if it's short and pithy, we call it a proverb. If it's a longer storytelling kind of thing, we call it a parable. And we would, be, we, would, we would never dream of calling a, a proverb a parable or calling a parable a proverb. We would keep those absolutely distinct. And yet, in the Hebrew, they're both called mashalim. They're both called, uh, each, whether it's a proverb or a parable or a taunt or any of these other applications, they would all be called mashal. They would be called mashalim. 
in the plural. So anyway, that was under main point two. We spent quite a bit of time on it. I hope that was edifying. Um, in any event, point three then, Solomon begins by explaining what the book of Proverbs will do. And then he illustrates how to get started. You get started by the fear of the Lord. Verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So verses two through six really tell us what Proverbs will do to us. And then how to get started is verse seven. Again, this is the main point three in our outline. Solomon begins by explaining what the book of Proverbs will do. That's Proverbs 1, verses 2 through 6. And how to get started, Proverbs 1, 7. In so many ways, the fear of the Lord is foundational to not just Proverbs, not just the Word of God itself, but life, living the Christian life in this fallen world. You start with the fear of the Lord. You start with the reverence of, of who God is and who God is not, right? God is not you. And uh, we have to have reverence before our Creator. That Creator-creature distinction is so vital. And so beginning with the fear of the Lord, this is why in, in the raising of children, at the foundational stage, we ground into them, we, we, we build into them that fear of the Lord. And part of that is the fear of the parent, <laughs> all right, as a reflection of the fear of the Lord. But you have discipline, and children learn that there is authority, and that you obey authority, and that that, that is for your blessing, that it is for your protection. So fear of the Lord is how you get started. Verses 2 through 6, though, describe what Proverbs will do. The Proverbs of Solomon have been written and are designed to, and you see all of these other twos, okay? And so we got a good start on it, I think, last week. Studying Proverbs equips the reader to, to know wisdom and disciplined instruction. This is what we see in verse 2, to know wisdom and disciplined instruction instruction studying proverbs equips the reader not just the reader you should probably expand that right it's not just enough to read it but you read it you embrace it you adopt it you you incorporate it as a part of your thinking process and your life process right i mean there's a lot of things i read but i don't i don't absorb or i don't embrace or i don't um adopt i like the word adopt right you know i would i would read a newspaper but i'm not going to embrace that information and adopt it to guide my life all right i read it to learn facts i read it to learn current events and what's happening but there's a difference between simply reading something and adopting it laying claim to it and allowing it to shape your thinking because that's what it's designed to do so studying proverbs equips the reader to know wisdom and disciplined instruction. To know wisdom. And the wisdom here, of course, is the chachma wisdom and the musar, uh, disciplined instruction. That's the vocabulary we gave way back in the introduction to this book, uh, this book study. Because we're going to come to those terms again and again and again and again. You're going to see chachma hundreds of times in the process of this book study. And then musar, the disciplined instruction. That means that you submit to its regimen, you submit to its authority, you submit to its correction. That uh, there's a lot of things you learn about that don't necessarily rebuke you. Well, doctrine rebukes you as you learn it. And so you submit to it, and you uh, submit to the disciplined instruction that swats you when you get out of, out of line. It swats you and gets you back into step again. Disciplined instruction is what the Hebrew calls musar. In the Greek, it's the paideia instruction that happens. We're to train up a child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. 
Now, this is the wisdom, of course, that's despised by the foolishness of this world, and there's verses that uh, we went through there as we studied point A. Secondly, though, studying Proverbs equips the reader to discern the sayings of discernment. And I love the idiom that's here in uh, the second part of verse 2, what we call Proverbs 1, 2b, the second half of verse 2, to discern the sayings of understanding. And it's kind of unfortunate in the American Standard Translation that they they uh, use the translations that they do with discern on the one hand and then the sayings of understanding on the other. Because by having such widely different renderings of that in English, I think you miss the wordplay. The wordplay is that we are equipped to bean the binah. To bean the binah. And so we've got the verb bean and we've got the noun binah and they're both in this context. And if uh, and, and I think... They're designed that way to, to uh, it's like if you're trying to explain an explanation, right? <laughs> you know, explains a verb, explanations a noun. So um, if I say a saying or anything like that, it would be then a redundant expression that incorporates both a verb and a noun. So uh, to either discern the discernments might be a way to do that, uh, to understand the understandings. Well, no, I don't like understanding because there's a better expression for understanding. But I, I do like discernment. The idea of being or binah means that I am dividing between two things. I am, I am, uh, there's, there's different idioms in Hebrew like bain and ubain where you're com- comparing one thing with another. You're distinguishing a couple of things. You're establishing an either-or um, conundrum, an either-or division. And that's what we're supposed to have. We're supposed to make careful discernment. We're commanded to rightly divide the word of truth. We're commanded to discern good from evil and truth from the lie. Proverbs will allow us to do that. I believe Proverbs will allow us to draw that line in the sand and put things on either side. And that's that's what it really comes down to. Okay? The world won't like you for it. (laughs) The world will tell you you're very narrow-minded and closed-minded and you, you you hold to these absolutes and they'll tell you, well, there are no absolutes. Just smile. Realize that they're, they're insane when they say that. Okay? Understand that logically to make that absolute statement that there are no absolutes is, is built in uh, illogic. Okay? So we want to discern the discernments. And that's what Proverbs will do to us. Thirdly, studying Proverbs equips the reader to accept the disciplined instruction. We're back to this musar again, like we had in verse 2, but now we have the subject matter for what that musar is supposed to lead us into. Studying Proverbs equips the reader to accept the disciplined instruction for these items that are now listed in verse 3. Successful living, righteousness, justice, and uprightness. All right, those are the four objects for the musar. Insightful or successful living, righteousness, justice, and uprightness. And last week we spent the whole hour on that successful living. Insightful, successful living. Today I hope to cover righteousness, justice, and uprightness. And we'll see how quickly we can work our way through those. All right? But these are the, these are the courses for Musar. This is what Musar should teach us. And you start to wonder, are you able to grow in any of these realms without Musa? I don't think you can. 
I don't think you can grow in the field of, of righteousness without Musar, or in the field of justice without Musar, or the field of uprightness without Musar. Certainly, I don't think you can reach the successful life that is described in the Old Testament without, without Musar, without the disciplined instruction. So studying Proverbs equips the reader to accept the disciplined instruction. And that's all that is is simply a humility test. <laughs> all that is is simply, again, the fear of the Lord and humbling yourself and acknowledging, Father, I need to be disciplined. I, my life needs to be disciplined. My thinking needs to be disciplined. Because um, otherwise, Father, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in this, in this fallen world. And um, without, uh, without the Word of God to shape my thinking, I'm going to be conformed to this age. I'm going to be undisciplined. I'm going to be uh, you know, living for myself again before I know it. So it takes discipline. And I can appreciate that. So, uh, not only do we have it here in verse 3, to receive instruction, uh, to receive disciplined instruction in uh, wise behavior, uh, but also in chapter 2 and verse 9, where it says, Then you will discern righteousness, justice, equity, and every good course. All these moral uh, benefits, and, 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 and who wouldn't want this, right? These are so desirable that even, you know, that Satan replicates these in his philosophies, in his religions, in his moral um, uh, counterfeits. There's all kinds of moral people out there that tell you, well, I'm upright, I'm fair, right? I'm a good person, and they, they, they're following every satanic lie that's out there. But they'll tell you that they're a good person, they're a moral person, you know, and what it is is Satan's counterfeit. It's not the musar of, of, of God's disciplined instruction that's shaping them in these fields of righteousness and justice and uprightness. It's all satanic. It's all satanic, but they will throw it in your face and say, I don't need Christianity. I don't need the Bible. I can be moral without it in any event. Well, all right. So you get into those kind of discussions say, yeah, you can be moral without it. But all your righteousness is a filthy garment that's not acceptable in the sight of God. And all that morality will still send you to hell if you don't have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All right, so last week, we, our whole hour is given over to Sakal. S-A-K-A-L, Sakal. And just like with, uh, with Proverb, um, we're left with a Hebrew term that really defies a single English definition. Because sometimes it refers to insight and, and, and the perception that we have. Sometimes it refers to the success, very frequently refers to the success that people have. And uh, it's really, uh, and sometimes it simply refers to the prosperity that comes about because of that success. So it's, it's 60 Old Testament uses for Sakhal, variously how it's rendered, insight, success, or prospering. But I think it's vital that we get a handle on it. Um, that we don't want to confuse it with chachma wisdom. Because there is a distinction between chachma and sakal. There's a distinction that the, in the Hebrew mind anyway is significant. We, we can't lose sight of that. This is what Eve was lusting after. She looked at that tree and saw that it was desirable for success. It was desirable to make one wise. Okay, That's the Genesis 3.6 use of sakal. And it's not, she didn't want the Proverbs kind of wisdom. She didn't want to have the chachma wisdom, the wisdom that Satan had, whereby, you know, he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, we're told. No, it's not wisdom there in Genesis 3. That's the point. And I would love to retranslate Genesis 1-3 away from that, it was desirable to make one wise. I believe it should be rendered, it was desirable to make her insightful 
or successful. Okay. Likewise, uh, these other uses in Joshua and in Samuel and in, in uh, the poetic uses in Psalms and in Isaiah, um, I think that the issue is uh, success, secular success, earthly success that comes about by virtue of having a mind trained by the Word of God. So, um, anyway, that's the verb sakhal, and then you've got the noun maskil that describes a particular kind of psalm. There's 13 of those in our Old Testament. Um, there's 13 maskils, whereby each of those psalms is itself an insightful psalm. It is a skillful psalm, that those particular psalms, if you were to memorize those psalms, they would produce an effect similar to studying the book of Proverbs, that they would produce within you a sakhal, a skill, an insight uh, with respect to how you conduct your life, okay? You know, and, and that's, I think that's huge. You know, I mean, we talk about the difference between um, knowledge and wisdom, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that know a lot of stuff but have no wisdom. So they've got all the information, they have all the facts, they know a lot, but they still are just a fool. They make wrong choices, uh, they, they're, they're foolish instead of wise, and even though they know better, they do the foolish stuff anyway. Okay, that's common. We're, we're, we're used to distinguishing between knowledge and wisdom. Okay, we're solid on that. But what if sometimes wisdom isn't enough? Because I have wisdom, but I don't have the insight. In other words, I don't have the perspective. I don't have the... So I, I can make a right decision if only I knew that this was the time for that wisdom to be applied, okay? I didn't have the insight to recognize that this was the place, the time, the occasion, the, the circumstances. I just never saw it coming. Had I seen it, then I would have applied my wisdom. Okay, you see the difference there then? So I think insight, and then based on that insight, then the success and the prospering that comes. David had insight. He had success. He, had, he prospered on the battlefield in every battle he fought. All right? And that's the, the sakhau that's described there. So this, this adds, to me, this adds another dimension. And we've, I think we've always been solid on facts versus wisdom, knowledge versus wisdom. I think we've always been solid on that. But even beyond wisdom, you can be the wisest owl that's ever in, been in the woods, right? Right? Woodsy owl. You could be the wisest owl in the forest, but if you have no insight, if you have no um, perception to know when to use that wisdom, then you'll be the wisest fool out there. And, and you never make the right decision at the right time because you just don't have the insight to make that, to exercise your wisdom appropriately. That's the difference. And so I think if we can keep our sockel different from our wisdom and stop rendering it wisdom. I think that just confuses things. <laughs> if, 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 if in the English Bible I see the word wisdom, I'm, I want to think chakma. I want to think chakma or chakam or some of the wisdom terms. I, wanna, I don't want my thinking to go in the, in the wisdom path if in fact it's sockel. I, I want it to go in the, in the insight path. All right, and then righteousness. Let's move on to the second, third, and fourth uh, subject uh, matter here for this disciplined instruction. And if you think about it, there's a curriculum that you follow. There's a, there's a curriculum that you follow, or there's a, there's a syllabus that you follow. There's coursework that you pursue. What's on, what goes on your transcript? Okay, You know, we just started a new school year, and, and you've got a um, particular subject matter with, with your home school or with your uh, private school, whatever you're doing. Um, 
And so maybe you've got a course in language arts and a course in math and a course in science and a course in history and geography and you've got a course in, in uh, Bible, all right? And you've got a course in uh, uh, home economics and you've got a course in Hebrew. And plus you've got a, an extra driver's ed course going on at the moment. That's I just described Christopher's school year, okay? And so he's got all those courses. Did I get them all? Language arts, math, science, history, geography, Bible, Home ec, Hebrew, and driver's ed. Yeah, maybe you don't really count driver's ed. Driver's ed's after dinner in the evening. That's not really part of the school day. So, but anyway, those are your courses, okay? And Proverbs now is telling us what our courses are in this, um, in this uh, disciplined instruction. Verse 3, to receive instruction, to receive disciplined instruction in insight, Righteousness, justice, and equity. Those are the four courses for the discipline and instruction. All right? So we covered the first one already. The insight, cross off wise behavior and put insight, or the insightful application of wisdom, insight. And then righteousness, justice, and equity. Righteousness, justice, and equity. Why do I need instruction in these? I thought these were just given to me. No, they're not. Well, they are. Righteousness is given to you. But you still need instruction in that righteousness. Okay, don't confuse the righteousness as a gift of your salvation versus the ongoing righteousness that we have to walk in and live by and and uh, and shape our our lives. Okay, uh, some people just get wrapped up in the the position we receive and then fail to understand that no, there is an ongoing uh, expression of that in my daily life. So righteousness requires instruction. And this is our second subject matter for the Musar. So we have, under point two now, we have Tzedek. T-S-E-D-E-Q. Tzedek. And uh, Tzedek plus Tzedekah, when you add the feminine ending on it, the A-H ending, I usually just blend them together. Uh, tzedek is, is and, and Tzedekah, they're different nouns, and, and like I say, you got the, I'm asking them in the feminine, but Really, it's the same word, and I, and I don't find any functional difference between them. Um, this one's masculine, and one's feminine. So number 6664, the Strong's number for the masculine, for Tzedek, has 119 Old Testament uses. The feminine, Tzedekah, is 6666, okay? Uh, with 157 Old Testament uses. So if you combine the two, man, you're looking at over 300 different places in the Old Testament, you've got you to work your way through to get a handle on this. You might imagine righteousness is a dominant theme in the Bible. <laughs> the Bible has a lot to say about righteousness, how God is righteous and we're not, and how we need to have his righteousness. Okay? Then we have the adjective tzaddik, which means righteous, T-S-A-D-D-I-Y-Q, double the D and change your vowel pointing and you get tzaddik, Number 6662 is the Strong's number with 206 more uses. And so now, we're, man, we're over 500 uses of between the noun and the adjective to, throughout the Old Testament to, uh, to find what the Bible has to say about righteousness. Okay? And uh, sometimes the uh, adjective, is tra- instead of being translated as righteous, sometimes it's translated as just. And that's a frustration too. <laughs> All right, because if something is right or something is just... Um, in English, we're pretty we're more precise than that, and sometimes we prefer to have a different term. But the adjective sometimes is rendered just instead of right. All right, so I boiled it down. 
to those verses there that I think will give us a pretty good handle on righteousness or justice. Not looking at 500 or 600 different verses of the Old Testament, but at least this survey should remind us. And maybe we don't even need it. Maybe we don't even need it because, hey, hasn't the Lord taken us to Romans lately? Don't we understand what righteousness is, what justification is, what it means to receive that righteousness? Well, it does. However, I would still put forth this morning that it's worth going through these verses and, and, and because if we fail to realize there's a difference between the righteous position we have and the righteous walk we're expected to live, we're in trouble. Positional truth versus experiential truth. Yes, God gives us righteousness the day we're saved. Of course. We get saved and righteousness is imputed to our account. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to my account. Great. But that happens the moment I place my faith in Christ before I even know the doctrine about it, right? And then, but it doesn't stop there. I have to live the rest of my Christian walk over 40 years now. I need to grow in that righteousness. I need the musar, I need the disciplined instruction to teach me in the realms of righteousness so that my thinking is transformed, my life is a reflection that, that I exhibit that righteousness in this, in this unrighteous world. Is that making sense? Okay, again, it's the difference between positional, which is an objective reality, and then experiential. Experiential. I think Mike Smith addressed this when he was here in our conference last year. He said, more believers get so confused because they confuse positional truth with experiential, right? And forgiveness is another thing, right? We're eternally forgiven the day we get saved. But we have the ongoing forgiveness that we need when we confess our sins, when we're restored to fellowship. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have daily forgiveness for the rest of our lives. But how many Christians, and you've met them, I'm sure, confuse the two, the positional with the experiential? We don't want to do that. So as we work our way through some of these Sadiq passages, maybe it would be useful to kind of have that thinking in mind. Uh, I, I kind of selected just a couple of places in Genesis where I think it's foundational, uh, a couple of places in Leviticus where it's very uh, legal, okay, ceremonial, um, some places in Deuteronomy where it's being reviewed for the next generation. I think that's important. If you've got a handle on the righteous life, great for you, but pass it on to your kids. Pass it on to your grandkids, all right? And grandchildren have a chance to learn with their grandparents about what righteousness is. Then... Uh, Second Samuel, First Kings, both with the kind of the transition from David to Solomon. There, I found those interesting and kind of a neat. I, I wouldn't maybe include those in other contexts, but since we're dealing with Proverbs and we're dealing with the handoff from David to Solomon and how kings reign, I uh, thought it might be important to list those in our uh, in our study today. And, but if you really want to be a major on righteousness, you got to go to the wisdom literature. You got to go to Psalms and Proverbs. You got 135 uses of these terms in the Book of Psalms. You've got uh, 93 uses of righteousness in Proverbs. And, amazingly enough, coming up, 75 uses in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has, I mean, he's, he's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And what is he, what's one of his dominant themes? It's going to be righteousness, okay? The righteousness of the Jewish nation, or lack thereof. The righteousness of their coming Messiah. The righteousness of the promised kingdom. Uh, massive theme coming up, so stay tuned for that as uh, we launch Isaiah here in the next couple of weeks. All right, so start with uh, Genesis 15. And we, and we know this because this gets quoted in the New Testament. This is kind of a, a basic verse that shapes uh, a lot of our 
understanding of righteousness. In verses 1 through 5, you've got the covenant promises of the Lord. As Yahweh comes to Abram in a vision, says, Stop fearing, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And uh, Abraham's got some questions. He said, You promised me a child, but I'm still childless, Lord. And uh, so he reconfirms the covenant promise. It goes way back to chapter 12. Take, took him outside in verse 5, says, Count the stars of heaven. Can you count them all? Can't count them all, can you? You won't be able to count all your descendants either. That's the point. And so, but the key verse there in verse 6, he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned. It was reckoned. It's not wages. It's not merit. He doesn't earn or deserve the righteousness. It is granted on on an imputational basis in a response to faith. He believed in the Lord and he reckoned to him as righteousness. When you believe, Romans 4 tells us that faith is not a work. Faith is not wages. That uh, when it's reckoned, it's credited, regardless of what you've earned and deserved, because what you've earned and deserved is the lake of fire. But because he responded to the promise of God by faith, then he imputes righteousness to your account. And that's what happens here. So this is our introduction to righteousness. It's not something we can deserve ourselves. It is something that is granted positionally in response to trusting in the promises of God. Uh, In Genesis 18 then, next use of it, verses 19, well that's a huge chapter there, 19 through 28 in that that section. But I think this is, uh, we're familiar with the story, I don't have to read the whole thing, okay? But you'll notice it's a part of the expectations of a covenant people the expectations of stewards israel and their stewardship of course but then we would draw an application ourselves in our own stewardship but here's the uh, i love this um in verse 17 let me back up to verse 17 of genesis 18 he says the lord said this is after they have their dinner and their conversation then the men walk down into sodom and abraham is still uh, nearby and the Lord is debating back and forth. He says, well, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And I love that. Do you ever do that? You ever debate amongst yourself? Well, do I do this? Do I do that? You end up with this long debate and then you get in arguments with yourself. All right, well, Yahweh does this. And he says, shall I? And he's asking this question internally within, maybe within Trinity or within the Godhead. Okay. Now he knows what he's going to do. He knows what he's going to do for, from the foundation of the world. His plan has been put in motion. But this language is used. He goes through the exercise thinking out loud so that Abraham can learn, so that the angels can learn. So, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, because he is the covenant, the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant, and the steward of my plan and program on earth, he needs to be aware of my works. He needs to be aware of, of what I'm doing. He needs to know my plan. He needs to know my, my, uh, my works, my present works, what I'm doing now, unfolding in time. In other words, I'm not going to keep him in the dark because he's my steward and he's expected to, to be my fellow worker in this, in this responsibility. Does that make sense? So are we in the church. We're his fellow workers in the church. Is he going to hide from us what he wants us to do? 
Does he put us in a maze to find the cheese like blind mice or something? No, he lays out his plan and he clues us into what he expects of us. He doesn't hide from us what he expects for us to do. It says, run with endurance the race that's set before you. Not hidden. All right. Then he says, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him. Notice, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Here's our two terms, and they're going to come up in our, in our Proverbs study. All right. The tzedek and the mishpat. We'll have these coming up. These are topics two and three in the, in the Musar of Proverbs. To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So he receives a positional righteousness, but he's expected to keep it, to walk in it. He's expected to experience it in the outworking of his faith, the outworking of his salvation in fear and trembling, in the expression of his Christian walk. And he's supposed to train up uh, his household after him in the same in the same. Uh, customs and traditions he may command his children and his household after him what kind of legacy are we leaving to our children and our grandchildren and so it goes down uh the rest of these uses here in these verses is about the righteous within the city are there 50 righteous in the city uh if if the 50 righteous are lacking five maybe there's only 45 are there 40 righteous are there 20 righteous is there are there only 10 righteous all right? And all the time through this entire story, we're dealing with tzedek. We're dealing with tzedakah. We're dealing with tzedek, uh, the terms that are, uh, we're presently looking at in this vocabulary study. So understand that our, now when he talks about righteous in the cities, he talking about positionally righteous and saved? Or is he talking about experientially righteous in terms of living out their Christian walk visibly, manifestly in, in their culture? Ooh. <laughs> Maybe it's not just a head count of who's saved and who's lost. Maybe it's not just a head count of who's regenerate and who's unregenerate. Maybe in the search for ten righteous, you're looking for not only born again, but also those that are experientially living out that righteousness and justice. As it says here, keeping the way of the Lord. The way, okay? By doing righteousness and justice. Not just having it, doing it. To me, that's huge. To me, that's huge. And so um, I'll leave that as an open question for today, whether uh, there were 10 regenerate in the city, but that was irrelevant because there were not 10 that were walking in that righteousness, that were doing the righteousness in the city. Let's get over to Leviticus to see some more righteousness in Leviticus. Leviticus 19. I don't know that you can prove it one way or the other, but you can at least have some thoughts on the... uh, rescue of Sodom. Leviticus 19, we see that, okay, we've already seen that righteousness is something personal, right? That, in, that as I conduct my Christian walk, my personal walk, the outworking of my personal Christianity is going to be one of righteousness and justice. So it's personal, but it's also public it's a matter of public righteousness, public morality, public justice in, in a culture. Okay? And so as in Leviticus, as the standards of God's righteousness are given to the Jewish people for their national government, for their national laws, we have laws that reflect God's righteousness. And so we've got all these sundry laws about idolatry and sacrifices and uh, stealing 
All right, and uh, how to provide for the uh, the uh, the poor, how they can work for their food, and uh, how not to give false testimony in court, how not to uh, oppress your neighbor, how to pay your wages on time. In verse thirteen, don't wait till tomorrow; pay him tonight. If he worked with you today, then pay him today. Um, the uh, Israelis with Disabilities Act in verse 14 there, the shall not curse a deaf man or place a stumbling block before the blind. All right. And uh, how, do we, how do we relate to the disabled and, the, and uh, the elderly? Then verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment, nor shall you be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. Both ways are wrong. If you've got a perverted justice system that, that favors the, the well-to-do, that's wrong. If we have a perverted justice system, system that punishes the well-to-do because they say, hey, here's some deep pockets, let's sue them and give money to the little guy, that's wrong too. You cannot be unbalanced in your justice to either favor the, the, the rich or to plunder the rich and favor the, uh, the poor. Both imbalances are um, wrong in God's sight. So you shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You're to judge righteously with tzedek, standards of tzedakah or tzedek. Okay, that's verse 15. And this is a matter of public righteousness. A matter of public, um, the standard of righteousness in public, not just in private. All the atheists today want you to just go home and be, be religious at home. Keep your, keep your spirituality personal. Keep your faith private. That's just personal. That's private. It has no place in public life, they would tell you. Okay? And that's not what God calls for us to do. That we are to have a personal faith. We are to have a public faith. A public expression of our righteousness that ought to be consistent with our personal uh, standard of righteousness. Too many hypocrites out there have a public righteousness and a personal wickedness. Okay? We know that. The culture should be righteous if it's shaped by righteous people. That's the, that's the entire point here. Down to verse 36, there are four uses in verse 36. By the way, Dan, I learned that my subscript X4 is really bad for the personal book builder. It will not know what to do with a subscript X4. So I started taking those out to make a personal book with them. Anyway, verse 36 you shall have righteous balances, righteous weights, a righteous ephah and a righteous hen. It's translated just in most of these cases, but it's a tzedek. It's a tzedek or a tzedekah or a tzedek. Okay? You shall have a tzedek balance, tzedek weights, tzedek ephah, and a tzedek hen. Everything has to be righteous according to a standard. Ultimately speaking, it's God's standard, but we're reflections of that if we maintain our own standards, okay? And this, by the way, is a valid function of government. It is a valid function. I'm glad that when I fill up my tank with gas that there's an inspection sticker on that gas tank because an an agency of government has gone in there on whatever periodic basis they do in their spot checks, and they verify that the the, uh, gas pump is, in fact, pumping one gallon per gallon, right? They're not shaving it off, whereby I think I got 10 gallons, but really they just gave me nine gallons, and I paid for 10, but 
You see what I'm saying? If they have the unjust scales, if they have the unjust uh, gas pumps, then I'm getting ripped off. And I don't want to get ripped off because gas is expensive enough. Okay? So uh, it, is, it is proper, it is a proper function of government to inspect the scales, to inspect the, uh, the weights and the measures. So, because they have to be righteous. That is, they have to be according to a standard. That's righteous. And it's a matter of public life. Deuteronomy 9, got to give it to the next generation. Say, well, our parents knew all about this, yeah. Now you got to, it's your turn in your generation. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. The uh, Exodus generation is dead and buried, and now the wilderness generation has to learn the same doctrine before they're able to go in and take the land. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. And uh, here they're a little bit afraid of the giants that are in the land. Hear, O Israel, you are, to, you are crossing over the Jordan today. That's how the chapter begins. This is the day you're crossing over. You've been waiting 40 years for this day to come. Your parents waited for it. They died. You're waiting for it. Now the time has come. You're crossing over Jordan today to go into dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven, people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, who you know, and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Those giants that your fathers were terrified of when they failed at Kadesh Barnea, guess what? They're still there. I believe the very same ones are still there. I believe the giants are long-lived beyond, uh, due to their Nephilim status, they're going to be still alive in the, in the next generation. Who can stand before the sons of Anak? But know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you. Yahweh marches in front of you, so don't be afraid. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. You may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. Then we get into these verses now, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. He says, Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you because of my righteousness, (laughs) that he did it because you deserved it. No, no. Don't say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. The plan of God is bigger than you, and there's more going on. And don't claim credit, and don't claim that you've earned it or deserved it. Verse 5, it is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart. We'll say more about uprightness next week, because that's the fourth curriculum item in, uh, in Proverbs. Um, it is not for your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you are doing, that you're going to possess the land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's bigger things going on. Yes, they are unrighteous. Yes, you are righteous by the grace of God, but there's also unconditional covenant promises, and that's what's really at work. Verse 6, know then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For, I don't know how more plainly we could get here than verse 6, you are a stubborn people. (laughs) So don't uh, don't claim credit. Don't get full of yourself. Even if you uh, have positional righteousness and right now you're walking pretty well in experiential righteousness, don't get puffed up. 
Don't get full of yourself. Don't get saying, oh, well, God's just smiling at me. He's all happy with how I'm doing, so now he's laying everything out in my life, and this other guy's wicked, so he's casting him down and exalting me. No. That is so finite. That is so relative. That is such a small scale. God's plan is eternal. It's on a massive scale beyond anything we can dream of. He's, he's exercising things for the fulfillment of his unconditional eternal covenants. And so much of what we operate in in the church, uh, you know, forget the Abrahamic covenant related to Israel, so much of what we reap in the church is a part of the, God the Father blessing his son with a bride. It's so much bigger than any one of us individually. It has to do with the entire bride of Christ from Pentecost to rapture and what the Father designs, desires to do in presenting a flawless, spotless white uh, bride dressed in white. Okay? So don't, uh, don't look at a little bit of, I mean, we, we're just so finite. And we've had, okay, we've had a pretty good month. We've had a pretty good year. We've had a pretty good whatever. Maybe we've had a pretty good 20 years or whatever. Whatever. Look back over it. Acknowledge it. Give thanks for it. But don't get full of yourself. Realize, oh, what are you going to do in the next 20 years? What are you going to do in the 20 years beyond that? Okay? We're kind of talking about that because our 20 years is coming up. But you know what? Last month, Todd Kennedy had his 40-year anniversary at Spokane Bible Church. All right, 40 years from 1974 to 2014. So um, anyway, how about when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun? That's, uh, there's something we can celebrate. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. More righteousness. And any one of these, I think you could take any one of these passages and make a family devotion out of it, make a personal Bible study out of it, Teach, uh, teach some folks about righteousness. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Judge with righteous judgment. And this is in civic life. This is in, in all your localities. And the best thing is, is you're not running off to a Supreme Court every day uh, you're actually handling it locally. You've got judges in every village. You've got judges in, every, uh, in all these towns according to your tribes. That's why you go to the city gate. You talk to the elders in the gate. You handle it locally. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. You start putting money into the factor. You start getting the unequal scales. You just perverted the entire concept. And when you do that, you are attacking the God of righteousness. Perverted justice in in culture, in society, perverted justice is an attack on the God of righteousness. That's why he takes it so serious. That's why it's throughout the Old Testament. Justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. If your culture has perverted justice, how much longer do you expect to have your borders, to have your land, to have your sovereignty? You might expect you're going through some cycles of discipline pretty quickly because you've perverted justice and you've attacked the God of righteousness. Anyway, this is uh, the verse Jesus cited when he said in John 7, 24, he said to judge with righteous judgment. You and I are commanded to judge with righteous judgment. We are to have divine viewpoint in how we look at things and we are to judge with righteous judgment. And uh, you can take this and uh, stick it in your cap like a feather 
in your cap. And then uh, when somebody tries to quirk you or tries to uh, tweak you with Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged, and you get some kind of a snippy little unbelieving atheist that, that snips at you with a judge not lest you be judged, then you pull this feather out of the cap and you say, no, my Lord commands me to judge with righteous judgment. And uh, they're totally abusing Matthew 7 anyway when they do that. And uh, there it is. All right, John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That's the command from our Savior. Judge with righteous judgment. Going back to Deuteronomy, we're to have His standards. And our judgment is to be accurate based on His standards of righteousness. Okay, uh, quickly then, 2 Samuel eight fifteen. We see that there's a personal application of righteousness. There is a cultural application of righteousness in our society, in our business dealings, in our government. There's also a uh, function for righteousness in our king, where they're supposed to be. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. This is the function of a king. This is the function of government. Uh, David was a type of Christ. What do you think Jesus Christ is going to reign with when he reigns in Jerusalem and the Davidic throne? He's going to be the king of righteousness. He's going to be the, he's going to provide the absolute righteousness and justice in ways this world has never seen before, not on a global basis anyway. And so there's the standard. If we realize that we don't have a king of righteousness and justice, if we have a wicked king over us, we're going to groan. But we better wake up and realize we're the, our nation is under the hand of God's judgment. We better start praying and interceding for a people that are about to fall. And then, of course, it carries over to the next generation. 1 Kings 10, verse 9. David set the bar pretty high for every Davidic king afterwards. And at least early in Solomon's life, he, he measured up to that standard, as we're told here in 1 Kings 10, 9. She praises him. She praises his nation and his administration. Queen of Sheba in 10.6 says, uh, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half has not been told me. The half has not been told me. That shows up in a lot of our hymn lyrics. Behold, um, you exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these, your servants, who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. What a delight it is to be a citizen of your nation, to be an official in your government, to be an aide in your administration. What a, what a privilege and a delight to serve under such grace. She says, um, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king, purpose clause now, to do justice and righteousness. Tzedek and Mishpat. These are the two curriculum items that we're looking at here in Proverbs. Okay? We'll do Mishpat next week because we're still in righteousness this week. And so it should be a function of government, a function of our private life, our public life, and the authority over our nation. The authority over our nation should be centered on righteousness and justice. If not... If all you have is a, a tyranny or a dictatorship that's out for themselves only, then uh, you've got a problem. 
like I say, 135 times in Psalms, 93 times in Proverbs, 75 times in Isaiah. You can spend all day in the Old Testament working on issues of righteousness. What goes with righteousness is mishpat, judgment. You have righteousness and then justice. All right, righteousness and justice. Mishpat is what happens if you have a righteous standard that is applied in judicial function. All right, you have a righteous standard that's applied, and then as it's applied, you are either rewarding or punishing. You are either rewarding uh, conformity to that righteousness, or you are judging nonconformity to that righteousness. That's what mishpat is. It's judgment, justice, or custom. And they go hand in hand. That's why uh, years and years ago when Pastor Theme broke down the attributes of God and all the imminent and transitive attributes and so forth, you might remember how he did uh, truth, love, and holiness. Remember that? And then those were the three broader categories. And then underneath, uh, oh man, underneath truth was veracity and faithfulness. And underneath love was mercy and goodness. And underneath uh, holiness was righteousness and justice. Okay? These were the two uh, flip side of the coin underneath the, the broad umbrella of God's holiness. Okay? And I think it's probably a good way to systematize that. It's a, it's a good way to organize that into an organizational structure, okay? a flow chart for, uh, for God's attributes. So righteousness and, judgment, and justice, okay? tzedek and mishpat. Are the, uh, are the subdivisions underneath God's holiness, underneath his Kadashah. So, Mishpat, 49-41. And uh, Mishpat has 421 uses. And you go, oh my goodness, I just got through 500 uses of righteousness. <laughs> well, here's the good news is many, most of those 421 uses of Mishpat, a significant chunk of those uh, are, are in connection with righteousness anyway. Okay? A lot of those verses overlap. A lot of those verses have uh, righteousness blended with justice anyway. We've seen some of them already even this morning. So here's Mishpat, such as we already looked at in Genesis 18. Here's the prayer about judging, about uh, is God's judgment, is he, he's not going to have unrighteous judgment, is he? If there's 50 righteous in Sodom, is he going to sweep away the, the righteous with the wicked? God wouldn't have such, he wouldn't be so unjust, would he? So again, this is point three. We're looking at Mishpat. This is the third of our curriculum items. We won't get through all this today, but we'll come back to Mishpat and uh, uprightness next week. Strong's number 4941 with 421 uses. Judgment, justice, or custom. In other words, you have a judicial application based on that standard of righteousness. You know, what good is it to have a standard of righteousness if it's never enforced? What good is to have a standard if, it, if justice is never applied? So if you know for a fact that the speed limit is what it is, that's your standard of righteousness. But if you also know for a fact that the enforcement officers never enforce that speed limit on that section of road, well, then what good is the standard if the judgment is never applied? If you know, hey, this is a stretch of road, and they never, ever, ever enforce on this stretch of road. Once that reputation comes around, what happens to that stretch of road? Yeah, pretty quickly that stretch of road becomes the, you know, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway or something. I mean, they just, because word gets out. 
Or what happens if you have immigration laws? Oh, here I go. And there's a standard, but they're never enforced. There's never any judgment that's applied to that standard. Well, what what respect do people have for the standard of righteousness if there's never any judgment applied? If If it's never applied, if it's never if there's no consequences. Again, it should be either a reward or a punish. In Romans 13, when we studied why we submit to government, the function of government is to reward and to punish. That it is to apply judgment based on a righteous standard. So, that's what mishpat is all about. Mishpat, the verb shafat, okay? Take the uh, M off of mishpat and you've got the, the sh and the p and the t. And so you take the you take the am off of mishpat and you've got shafat, okay? And shafat is the verb that, to judge, uh, to exercise judicial function, to administer justice. That's shafat. So if we're to judge with righteous judgment, that means we are to shafat with tzaddik mishpat. And there you have it. All right, real quickly then, because I've only got two minutes. Um, and we've covered so many of these. And you'll notice again, 65 times in Psalms, 20 times in Proverbs, 42 times in Isaiah. It's the same uh, bulk uh, that we had with righteousness. We have the same preponderance of terminology in, uh, in the poetic books and in the poetic prophet. More and more I study Isaiah. You know, he's not just the greatest of the prophets, he's a poetic prophet. So much of Isaiah is his poetry. And um, you'll see that as we work our way through the book. All right, Genesis 18, we were here earlier, uh, verse 19 and verse 25. Uh, Abraham is supposed to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Okay, and that's the flip side of righteousness, uh, by doing tzedakah and mishpat. Don't just have them, do them. In uh, verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing. God, you wouldn't do this. You wouldn't slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge, the shafat, okay, uh, I think it's shafat there, participle, uh, shall not the shofate of all the earth deal justly? Should you not have mishpat? Obviously, God has to deal justly. He couldn't be, any, any unrighteous judgment God exercises would be a reflection of a flaw in his character, in his integrity. That's unthinkable. God in his perfection cannot judge unjustly. He's not capable of judging unjustly. And Abraham knows that, and that's why he gets, he gets bossy with the Lord in his prayer. Okay? Do you ever do that? You should. Jesus does it. Abraham does it. David does it. Moses does it when he's in fellowship. All right? We can get bossy with the Lord in our prayers, and Jesus tells us to. When we know his will, when we know his character, and we call upon him to defend his character. And he'll answer that prayer every time. All right, well, we'll do, deal with the rest of these next week in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. You might expect Leviticus has a lot to say about fairness, has a lot to say about justice. And again, we've got the example of David and Solomon there in Second Samuel 8 and 1 Kings 10. So, yeah, most of those are redundant, but we'll take a look at them anyway. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. Thank you, Father, that righteousness and justice and uprightness, these are moral character traits. Unbelievers can be moral after a fashion, but we want to be moral after your fashion. We want to be transformed by your word. 
We want the wisdom of Proverbs to, to in disciplined instruction, to produce in us this kind of righteousness, this kind of judgment, this kind of uprightness, this kind of insightful, successful living. All four of these curriculum subject matters, Father, is what uh, Proverbs does for us under the disciplined instruction of your truth. So, Father, I thank you today we can learn just a little bit more, be built up just a little bit more. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.